hey, under pressure, your attention closes in on you, your heart starts pounding, you get, you know, like they're going like, I thought this was the guy who said pressure is the solution. Uh, and I think what's really important for me is that, you know, pressure is both a problem and a solution. And so it's a bit provocative to say pressure is not the problem, it's the solution. But I actually think that's the frame that allows us to get at the good stuff under pressure. Because almost without fail, when I look at the hundreds of people that I interviewed for this book, when I asked them about the most pressure they'd ever been under, they talked about how it was the pressure that actually gave them the capacity to rise to those most challenging situations, right? It was actually the energy under pressure. Pressure is just energy, right? At the end of the day, pressure is a ball of energy. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are just some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast and I'm excited today as we get to dive deep into a world I am very passionate about. The power of pressure and why pressure isn't the problem, it's the solution. Our guest is the CEO of Third Factor where, the study, where they study the science of performance from the sports field to the boardroom where they help leaders be more effective, creative and resilient under pressure. It's had exposure to thousands of high performers from Olympic gold medalists to Navy SEALs, politicians, executives, and busy parents has led to his new book, The Power of Pressure. He is an instructor at the Smith School of Business at Queen's University and is an affiliate faculty with the University of North Carolina Executive Development at Keenan Flagler Business School at Chapel Hill. It's a pleasure to introduce to you someone who loves disarming your biggest pressures, a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, and a former Monitor Deloitte employee who lives in Toronto, Canada with his wife and three children, Dane Jensen. Dane, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Craig. It's great to be here. Uh, it's cool. And I'm super excited today to talk about pressure and obviously how that relates to resilience and, and also performance. So... I normally, I don't normally do this, but I feel it's appropriate for today. So I'm going to ask straight off the bat, what is the highest pressure moment you have faced in your life? <laughs> it's a great opener, Craig, because uh, as you know, from reading the book, this is, this is my favorite question. You know, what's the most pressure you've ever been under? Uh, this is kind of what's at the root of the book. Uh, and, and I think my you know, my highest pressure moment of all time is probably when, uh, uh, you know, I was sitting with my three kids and my mother uh, on a dock on a lake um, at a family property that we have there. And my wife had gone out for a run and left me in charge of the three kids, which, uh, uh, which she might tell you is not, you know, not something that she would repeat. Um, the older two kids immediately got in a massive fight. They, they started firing water guns at each other's face. And my mom and I got totally engrossed in getting them separated and sorted out. And, and so by the time we got them sorted out, all of a sudden we realized that my one-year-old son, who had been playing in a sandbox, <clears throat> sorry, I'll start. To, my one-year-old son, who had been playing in a sandbox uh, about 20 feet from the edge of the water, was, was no longer there. It was dead silent. You know, we called for him. We said, Henry, Henry, where are you? And we got nothing back, which is very unusual. This is a very loud kid. He can't walk at this point. He can only crawl. 
He's playing in a sandbox. It's 20 feet from the lake. On the other side of the sandbox, there is a steep slope that is covered in trees. So almost immediately, you're going, okay, where could this kid have crawled to? Uh, So we search the cottage. We look in the shed. He's not there. We're calling out again. I start to go, you know what? He had to go in the water. Like there's nowhere else to go. So I run into the water. I start making my way along the shoreline. There are three docks that we have along the shore. And I had to kind of steal my will and look under all three of them. Uh, You know, each time imagining I look under here and I see my one-year-old floating, you know, under the dock. It goes on for long enough that all of a sudden, uh, you know, uh, people from the other side of the lake get in their boats and, and make their way over and are going, are you okay? And I'm going, no, we're looking for my one-year-old. And so they join the hunt. Uh, and then all of a sudden we hear him cry from about 400 feet away uh, up this hill. And, and he had made his way somehow through the forest and over to a neighboring property. Uh, and, and at the moment that I heard him cry out, I have such a vivid memory of the feeling that I had, you know, the feeling like I had just literally run a a, a full sprint, right? Heaving chest, pounding heart rate, uh, doubled over. And so, you know, I I will often talk about that sort of, I I don't know exactly how long it was, but call it eight to 10 minutes uh, as the most pressure that I've ever been under. Yeah. You know, like I think, you know, there's lots of, potential pressure in life but I think the one as a parent when you've got young children and you lose them is possibly the most challenging one that we go through the most high stressful moments that we deal with well I think you know and we're I know we're going to get into this over the next hour but it you know that situation to me is about as extreme as you can get in terms of the two or two of the three major things that create pressure right so You know, one of the things that leads to pressure that has to be there, frankly, for us to feel pressure is important. Um, You know, we don't feel pressure when we're dealing with stuff that doesn't matter to us. And so the amount of pressure that we feel is directly proportional to how important is the outcome, or at least how important do I perceive the outcome? And, you know, so when I was in the midst of this, I was very conscious of, you know, this could be the moment that defines, you know, the life before and the life after. This could be the moment that my life changes irrevocably. And so the importance of this situation was, of course, you know, just off the charts for me. Uh, And then, you know, pressure exists where importance collides with uncertainty, right? So highly important, yes, you know, but if I know the outcome of a highly important situation, it's not going to create pressure. It's that combination of, hey, you know, this could be the moment my life could change. And I don't know how this is going to go. Like I, I, you know, at that point, the uncertainty was just so acute of, is this kid in the lake? Has the kid somehow wandered off down the road? You know, where is this guy? So, yeah, I think that aggressive sort of collision of massive importance with huge uncertainty, uh, that is really where pressure lives and certainly was very present in that situation. Yeah. And talking about that, you know, like obviously, you know, people hear the word pressure, they kind of can feel pressure, but what is really going on uh, internally inside our body when pressure occurs? Yeah, so I, you know, this is one of those things that I think we're starting to understand. It, it's still a little bit of a mystery for sure, but we're starting to understand this better because of advances in, you know, both biofeedback, which measures the biological signals of of stress, uh, like you know, sweat and heart rate and respiration rate. And then also neurofeedback, which gives us a little bit more insight into what's going on in the brain, although that's a little bit more opaque still than than the body. And, you know, so what we know uh, for sure is that when we are in situations that are highly important and highly uncertain, you know, there is a system that is like our gas pedal, uh, 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 you know, the sympathetic nervous system. And, And the job of the sympathetic nervous system is to ready our body to handle high pressure situations. Uh, And so when the the sympathetic nervous system gets activated, a number of physiological things happen, right? My heart rate starts to elevate, my respiration rate gets quicker, my muscles tense up, there's adrenaline and cortisol that gets pumped into uh, the bloodstream. Uh, And, and, you know, these physiological changes are accompanied by a really important psychological change or cognitive change, which is that as the process of pressure unfolds in the body, our attention starts to narrow. We start to move into a bit of an attentional tunnel. 
And what I mean by that is the amount of information that we can access both internally, like the amount of my own expertise I can access, but also the amount of information I can access in the environment. Like literally your vision starts to tunnel, your hearing starts to get more occluded uh, and your body takes in less and less information. And, and so those two processes are kind of mutually reinforcing. There's a bit of a debate in the scientific community of, you know, does the experience of pressure start cognitively where I go like, oh my gosh, this is important. And then that impacts my body. Or do our bodies respond precognitively to pressure, you know, and then our brain starts to go, oh, wow, the heart's really pounding, you know, we must be under pressure. But the, the thing that we want to recognize is that regardless of what the first mover is, whether it's the brain or the body, they are all intertwined. And it is a very much a mutually reinforcing cycle once it gets going. Uh, and so, you know, as all this stuff starts to unfold inside of us, this is where we can run into the, the problem of pressure, right? Which is there are real problems associated with that attentional tunneling. Uh, uh, when I get into high stakes situations, it's a bit of a problem that I can't access all of my expertise, that I can't you know, notice things in my environment that might help me. And so uh, you know, I think that's one of the things where we, we get a little bit into the paradox of pressure, which is you know, many of our default responses to pressure actually rob us of some of the stuff that we need to act on it, right? To manage pressure. And, and that's, I think, when people start to get into, uh, you know, some of the, uh, some of the, you know, the, the less good outcomes that happen under pressure. And, and I suppose, you know, like people hear of, you know, there's, there's pressure exerted on us versus, you know, kind of the internal pressure. But, you know, for me, I feel pressure is just an internal thing, right? It is, it is how you respond to external stimuli. And, you know, as you said, it comes down to importance or un and uncertainty and how our body reacts to that both um, cognitively and, and obviously uh, through the other mechanisms as well, uh, which is really, really well, interesting. And, and Craig, I want to I really emphasize that point because I think you're, you're bang on, right? You know, pressure is in the response. It's not necessarily in the situation. You can have two people who are in the exact same situation. One is excited and one is terrified, uh, you know. It, it, you know, the situation is the situation. Pressure is all in our response. Mm. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, people often will ask me, uh, you know, are people just naturally better at pressure than other people? You know, because pressure is in the response, it's not so much, you know, is it just the genetic and is it a genetic thing? And, I, you know, I do think there is a part of this stuff that is a little bit genetic, it, you know. I'm a big fan of, uh, as many people are, I know the documentary Free Solo, which is about Alex Honnold, you know, climbing up El Cap with no ropes and, you know, literally a four hour journey of unimaginable pressure where one mistake and you're dead, like, you know, period. I just don't think for most people that is mentally feasible. Like I, I actually just, you know, and they've talked about this with Alex where, you know, when you put him in an MRI machine, his brain just responds to fear and pressure differently. It's just, a, you know, there's different wiring in there. And so I do think there are certain aspects to the response that are a little bit innate. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I think what we have seen over and over again, in particular in our world, in the world of sport that we work in, it is we can train this stuff in the same way that we train the physical responses uh, uh, that we do through, you know, uh, strength and conditioning and massage therapy and, you know, rest and recovery. Like all of that stuff is also available in the mental domain. And so, yes, there is a certain range, I think, that is available to us. We can't all be Alex Honnold or, or, or you know, or Michael Phelps. And at the same time, there is a fair bit of elasticity in terms of our ability to train our responses under pressure. Hundred mm, percent. And talking about kind of that innate work, I'd love to actually go back. You know, so tell us a little bit about your childhood. You know, where did you grow up, and and what fascinated you as a young child? Um, so this is a great entry point for for me in particular because I think I had a bit of a unique entry point to to this whole you know this whole field of pressure. I mean, if we go way back. Uh, you know, I've always been incredibly passionate about music and uh, a big part of my childhood was, you know, the pressure of performance, of, of music performances. So I, you know, I bugged my parents to buy me a guitar at age four uh, and I, I started taking guitar lessons when I, I couldn't hold the guitar. We had to sit it on the, the, the you know, the stool and I would kind of play it lying down. And, and that continued for, 
uh, you know, for a long time, I picked up piano at age six. I started playing the drums at 12 and the trumpet at 13. And so I spent a fair bit of my time as a, uh, as a teen. Uh, yeah. Performing music, playing in jazz bands and stage bands doing the battle of the bands thing in high school. And so that was, you know, part of where my, I guess, pressure came from uh, uh, as a child, but simultaneously to this, I happen to grow up in a really unique environment. So, you know, my father has his PhD in sports psychology. Uh, my mom has a, a master's degree in clinical counseling psychology. Um, and they had really, you know, from the time I was very young, been working with elite athletes, uh, in particular in the Canadian sports system in, in the Olympic movement, in this kind of nascent field of sport or performance psychology. Uh, you know, at the time it, when I was growing up, it was kind of a dark art. Like, you know, people didn't really know <laughs> what this thing was. In fact, you know, my dad had to do a sports psychology degree in, in the, the phys ed faculty. Like psychology didn't really have a performance or sports psychology uh, department at that time. Uh, and so he was really, along with my mom, kind of at the forefront of supporting the development of mental performance skills in athletes uh, in Canada anyways. And that really kind of got rolling with the 1998 Winter Olympics, which were hosted in Canada and Calgary, where uh, my, my folks ended up working with, uh, uh, you know, athletes that produced four out of Canada's five medals at that game. Uh, and so, you know, growing up for me, I was actually surrounded from a very young age uh, by Olympic athletes, uh, you know, by people that my parents were working with to help them perform at high levels. And so, I, you know, I, I kind of joked that it was just kind of in the air for me uh, as a young kid. Um, but I will tell you, I, you know, like any young kid that is growing up, you, you know, you look at your parents and, and you kind of go, okay, right. You know, what's the big deal here? Like it wasn't necessarily something that I immediately at age eight or nine was like, wow, that's really interesting. And I want to focus in on that. Uh, I, I pursued a reasonably independent path. I got really interested in business. I went to business school. I became a management consultant, a strategy guy. Um, and I think it was actually the work I was doing as a consultant that really brought me back to this whole realm of, of pressure because I was doing so much strategy work in organizations and you know, so many times we would do strategy work and I would think it was really good work. And then you would go back to the client six months later and they would have done absolutely nothing with it. It hadn't moved. It hadn't been implemented. It, it, it wasn't impacting the way they were. And, and I realized through that work that like, hey, a great strategy, great ideas, this is necessary, but not sufficient, right? What's actually required is people who can under pressure really lead right? That, that can take those bold choices and actually bring them into reality that can help people make that, you know, high pressure journey from the way we used to do things to the way that we should do things. And so I came very circle, uh, full circle back from sort of a very left brain business education back to, hey, a lot of this is about, uh, you know, does this stuff hold up under pressure? And how do we actually take good ideas and, 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 and nail them when it actually matters? Yeah, it's really interesting, you know, when you when you look at pressure, right, it's like a bell curve. So if there's no pressure, nothing happens because right. it's too easy or, or we have no um, apathy to actually do something. Or if it's high pressure, then it just becomes too much and we kind of back off it. So we need to be able to form that level of pressure in the middle or, you know, and, and with say change, for instance, change doesn't occur unless there is some reason to do it, right? Like there's, um, there's a crisis moment or something like that, that, that forces in there. So pressure is really important. Like I think we need to debunk the myth for a lot of people who think that that pressure is a bad thing. Well, no, it's not. You actually need to use pressure. You can't take it fully away. You can't avoid it. You actually need to lean into that pressure to actually um, perform at a higher level and to yeah, make sure you I, do I, stuff. I think you're, you're bang on, right? You know, there's, there's burnout, but there's also rust out. And, you know, I think pressure, pressure is one of these things that is, you know, it's essential. Um, I think sometimes we think that pressure is kind of a nasty byproduct of life that we just have to kind of tolerate or, uh, you know, we kind of try to minimize it, but we know that we can't get out of it entirely. So we just try to live with it. Um, you know, pressure is an essential input into any environment where high performance is expected, right? We don't get performance without pressure. Mm. Uh, you know, if you're going to do things you haven't done before, you are going to experience pressure. It's, it's part of the human journey of growth and development. And so I think our ability to recognize that, that people rarely change when things are going flawlessly and there is no pressure, you know, people decide to change when, you know, there's a setback or there's some adversity or there's 
you know, a period where they go, I, you know, I don't want to feel like that anymore. And they get the pressure to, to move to the next level of development. So, yeah, I, you know, pressure for me is very much a double-edged sword. And I think, you know, the subtitle of the book is why pressure isn't the problem, it's the solution. And for listeners who in the 10 minutes heard me say that, hey, under pressure, your attention closes in on you, your heart starts pounding, you get, you know, like they're going like, I thought this was the guy who said pressure is the solution. Uh, and I think what's really important for me is that, you know, pressure is both a problem and a solution. Mm. And so it's a bit provocative to say pressure is not the problem, it's the solution. But I actually think that's the frame that allows us to get at the good stuff under pressure. Because almost without fail, when I look at the hundreds of people that I interviewed for this book, when I asked them about the most pressure they'd ever been under, they talked about how it was the pressure that actually gave them the capacity to rise to those most challenging situations, right? It was actually the energy under pressure. Pressure is just energy, right? At the end of the day, pressure is a ball of energy. And that energy can be channeled towards very destructive ends. It can lead us down the road to burnout and stress leave and, and, and all of that stuff that is very real, uh, you know, mental health challenges, mental injury. And that energy can actually fuel a whole bunch of positive outcomes, right? Where do more world records get set than anywhere else in the world of sport? The Olympics, hmm. because there's pressure, right? Pressure is energy. When we have our first kid, like what is it that sustains you through 90 days of sleepless nights and abject terror that you're screwing everything up? It's pressure. It's the energy under pressure. And, and you know, so I think there's this fascinating, you know, duality to pressure where it's like, yes, many of our default responses are kind of suboptimal and uncomfortable. And you only have to look around to go, there are other responses to pressure that are profoundly helpful. Like to your point about the internal response, we used to think there just there was only one response to pressure, right? And that was the fight or flight response. For, for a long time, that was our model of the central nervous system, right? There's fight, uh, freeze, or flee. You know, we now know that actually the body has a whole repertoire of stress responses, right? And, and, and with some attention, with some training, with some, uh, some practice, we can access alternative responses to pressure that allow us to channel the energy in very productive ways, uh, very productive ways. And the people who are best at pressure, that's what they work on. Yeah, I think this is this is quite a good time to kind of lean into, you talk about the pressure equation where you've already unveiled two of them, which is the importance and uncertainty, but also volume. So when we talk about, you know, those people that in those high pressure situations that help them to perform, is that where importance is kind of raised when we look at that equation? Is that where that rises up and maybe the volume reduces? Yeah, so, so the idea behind the equation is that, you know, when I ask people about the most pressure they've ever been under, I got life itself back. You know, I, you know the, the range of experiences that people share in response to that question spans from you know, taking a really important exam to getting caught too far from shore in the ocean, you know, with the tide going out. It, it spans from like giving a speech in front of 500 people uh, to caring for a dying parent while going through a really tough period at work, right? Like, you know, literally the stories that I heard uh, encompass almost every facet of the human experience. And yet when you synthesize them down, what I kind of observed was that they, they, they all shared some combination of three characteristics, right? Importance we talked about. So the outcome was important. Uh, the outcome was also uncertain. And then there was an element of volume, right? Volume, which is really the force multiplier for pressure. It's like, just how much do I have to deal with? How many tasks, how many decisions, how many distractions surround uh, those important uncertain situations? And so you know, to your point, I think when we get into these situations that are high pressure, just like pressure itself is a double-edged sword, it can be, you know, unhealthy and, and challenging, or it can be motivating and energizing. Each of the three components of the equation has the same kind of, you know, double agent character. So importance, for example, you know, when we are going through the grind of long haul pressure, right? Pressure that spans not just like, you know, a 60 minute exam, but like the months of a, of a demanding project at work while caring for, you know, sick parents, for example. Importance is vital. We need to be able to see a line of sight from what we're doing up to what really matters to us, right? We need to be able to connect with 
how tolerating or enduring or bearing this pressure is really important to us because that's where energy comes from through the grind. And at the same time, when we are in our peak pressure moments, importance is like unbearable, right? When I was looking for my son for nine minutes, I was like overwhelmed by importance. I couldn't stop thinking about how important it was. When we talk to Olympic athletes who are waiting in the ready room for an Olympic final, it's like, oh my God, I've invested my entire life in this. Hundreds, thousands of hours are coming down to this 60 seconds, right? The issue there is that the importance is so heavy that it starts to become stifling. And so importance can be hugely helpful under pressure, connecting with importance, and it can also be a huge cause of, of overwhelm. And so my ability to kind of keep that in, in, in balance a little bit, you know, to find importance and pull importance close, because that's what gives me energy over the long haul, but at the same time to keep things in perspective and see what's not at stake. That's a really important tension that we have to navigate. And I think what was most interesting for me about the study of pressure is that kind of tension exists for all of importance, uncertainty, and volume. All of them have that, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, dosage, you know, it can kind of help or hurt uh, character to them. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And it's just like, but I'm just going to, it's kind of taken my mind to, you know, this whole thing around, you know, from Malcolm Gladwell talked about, you know, the 10,000 hours and in, in tipping point, but it's if if we, and, and obviously there's different ways that you can look at that, but if we look at, you know, say for instance, you are preparing for something to perform well and you try and reduce everything down to, okay, I need to do this, 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 and this, and you're always preparing in kind of the same way and everything feels comfortable and natural to you, then you potentially like to fail. Whereas, you know, if you look at it more from the 10,000 experiments where you're, you're always putting you in some level of uncomfortableness um, to, try and f- to try and figure out how you can solve problems as you go along from a performance perspective, I think that's a lot more helpful um, mm. in that setting. Yeah. I think, that, I mean, I think that's, it, you know, I think that gets back to, the notion of you know pressure as a as an essential input to performance. I think you're right. If you're just going through the motions every time, you're not likely to get much better. Um, yeah, I mean the ten thousand hours stuff is a really interesting one, right? Because if you go back to the research that Gladwell was actually citing, which is Anders Ericsson's stuff on deliberate practice, if you read the original text on deliberate practice, you know the ten thousand hours was was a little bit of a throwaway for Ericsson. You know what he was really focused on was how do you spend those 10,000 hours? Uh, you know, he had, a, he had a famous line that was, you know, spending 10,000 hours in a cave isn't going to make you a geologist, right? Just because you're surrounded by rocks, uh, you actually have to work at it in a, in a certain way. And so, I, you know, I think your notion of, uh, you know, what are the things that I'm doing to, you know, force myself a little bit out of my comfort zone or, or to create, you know, and th- by the way, I think what you're talking about leans nicely into the double-edged sword of uncertainty, right? So I, I talked about the double-edged sword of importance, but we need a little bit of uncertainty in our lives uh, to learn, to grow, to mm-hmm. keep things interesting. We don't want to know how the movie turns out. We don't want to know the end of the book, right? That's what keeps it interesting and keeps us moving. Um, and of course, there are times when uncertainty moves from being, you know, uh, the spice of life to being something that's really uncomfortable, right? I- I'm, I'm happy to have 99.99% uncertainty on a $5 lottery ticket. Like that's why I play the lottery. That's what keeps it exciting. I would rather not have, you know, a 90% uncertainty on an operation uh, that I'm heading into the hospital for, right? So I think, you know, the amount of uncertainty that we can tolerate, the amount of uncertainty that's kind of helpful and, and, and motivating and exciting is really mediated by importance, mm. right? If a situation is of low to moderate importance, I need a fair bit of uncertainty to keep myself interested. If a situation is hugely important, Actually, I don't want a lot of uncertainty. It's very easy to tip over into overwhelm if there's too much uncertainty, uh, too much uncertainty at play. And we see this, by the way, in athletes who are later on in their careers, mm. right? Um, so, you know, early on when you're a rookie, you're attaching plenty of importance to every regular season game, right? And, and, and it's easy to get up for that stuff. You don't need a lot of, uh, you know, uh, uh, of help getting motivated. Actually, what you need to be able to do is keep importance in context You go, hey, you know, this is just one game. You take a veteran who's been around for, you know, 10 seasons, 15 seasons. The real issue is it's like, okay, 
I got to get something in the mix here to make this interesting for me, because otherwise this is just another game, another regular. And so there needs to be a little bit more uncertainty, a little bit more of a challenge, a little bit more of a, as you put it, a little bit less of the rote kind of routine and a little bit more uh, variety. Uh, so yeah, I think you're bang on with that. Yeah. And you've kind of exposed a little bit here too. You know, there's, there's two different kind of, I suppose, categories of, of pressure. You've got kind of that peak performance, short-term pressure, which is kind of on the spot, in the moment type pressure. Then you've got the, the long haul, long-term pressure where um, pressure builds over time. So when we look at those two, you know, what, what are the key differences you see in those kind of pressure moments and how big can the, can, can the effect or the result of those, whether it be negative or positive, be much larger in one than the other, or have they both got kind of their, their positives and negatives to them? Yeah, well, I, you know, so this is, this was one of the things that I actually found most interesting about pressure is, you know, I think people think of like people who are good at pressure. Uh, typically, I think we think of that more in terms of the peak pressure moments. Like, you know, this is the athlete that can, you know, do it when it counts in the championship game. Uh, this is the, you know, the, the special forces troop who can get parachuted into, you know, this critical situation and keep their head cool and, and prevail. Um, and I think that is one really important aspect of being, you know, quote unquote, good at pressure it, it are those peak pressure moments. And, and to go back to the equation, peak pressure moments are kind of like, violent collisions of importance and uncertainty, right? Highly important, highly uncertain collapses into, you know, whether it's a 60 second foot race or, you know, an hour, two hour long exam or presentation. Th then you have the long haul pressures, which is less about, you know, violent importance and uncertainty and more about grinding volume, right? It's really the third part of the equation that tends to dominate over the long haul. Um, that's another kind of being good at pressure. I and in fact, you know, you you know, you can look at the work that's been done in, in elite sport or the military, you know, often the people who are really good at nailing their peak pressure moments don't necessarily have the most well-ordered personal lives over the long haul, right? You know, that long grinding pressure from volume is, you know, it's just a very different thing. It can feel monotonous. It can feel, you know, relentless. And so one of the things I learned is that, you know, being good at pressure isn't about being good at one thing. It's about being good at two things. It takes very different things to handle peak pressure moments than it does to handle pressure over the long haul. And so I started talking about this notion as kind of being pressure ambidextrous, right? That, that if you want to kind of be, I guess, unstoppable in a sense, or if you want to really, you know, not just nail your performance moments, but also, you know, enjoy the long haul uh, and emerge with a sense of satisfaction and free from regret, you actually have to get good at, at, at two kind of separate sets of skills. Um, and I think that's part of what makes this whole area of pressure so fascinating is it's not just one thing, it's, it's two things. Mm. And I guess, you know, your question about outcomes, sorry, Craig, because I, I realized I didn't get all the way back to, you know, you said, are the outcomes bigger in one than the other? I think in one sense, yes, because the outcomes from peak pressure moments are very binary, typically. It's like I get the job or I don't get the job. I land the client or I don't land the client. I, you know, win the, the race or I lose the race. And so in one sense, those outcomes tend to be more pronounced and more stark. I would say the outcomes from the long haul tend to last longer, though. You know, when I talk to people who carry profound regret, it tends to be from how they handled the pressure of the long haul. You know, that the, they, they just couldn't handle the, the, the pressure of, of marriage or the way they acquitted themselves during end of life care for a loved one, you know, 10 years down the road, they look back and they go, you know, I made some choices that I wish I would, I hadn't have made because it, it, it alleviated the pressure on me, right? It made it easier for me. But looking back 10 years down the road, I actually really regret those choices. And so I think, you know, in the moment, the outcomes from peak pressure moments are much more acute. On the long haul, you know, I think it's the long over the long haul. It is the long haul that kind of allows us to minimize regret and maximize satisfaction. Mm. And, and, you know, there's a lot of talk in the world around burnout and burnouts from that long-term pressure and stress yep. versus those short-term 
high intensity bursts of, of kind of pressure and, and performance. Exactly. You've talked a little bit about, uh, you've kind of brushed on Navy SEALs and talking about athletes and business leaders. So in your research, in this space of pressure and performance, have you, what are the kind of differences you're seeing between business leaders versus Navy SEALs versus maybe Olympic athletes and, and potentially even a parent, right? There, there are the different types of pressures going on. So, so what are kind of the key things that you've noticed between those different groups? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, you know, the, the, the pressures that visit most of us who are not Navy SEALs or emergency physicians or Olympic athletes I do think to your, your prior question, I think it's that the long hauls tend to be the things that are, you know, more present for us. You know, we're not running the gold medal race. We're not having to clear a room in Ramallah. Like, you know, we're dealing with, Hey, I've got a demanding job. I've got kids. I've got aging parents. I've got mortgage payments. I've got car payments. And so I do think one of the big differentiators is just the relative weight, uh, that gets invested in peak pressure moments versus kind of the grind of pressure over the long haul. And so I, you know, I do think that in general, when I talk to people about these concepts who are just normal people living normal lives, what they're really most interested in is, okay, how do I navigate the pressure of the long haul in a way that doesn't drain me, that doesn't lead to burnout, uh, that I emerge from it with a feeling of satisfaction of having risen to the challenge and free from regret. Um, when I, you know, when we work with Olympic athletes, we're working predominantly on how do I perform in my peak pressure moments, right? How do I get out everything that I'm capable of? Now, I will say when we look at, you know, even just, you know, regular people holding down jobs and, you know, what is it that bends the arc of our lives? You know, this one thing to kind of sustain over the long haul, what actually bends the arc of our lives in terms of where we end up from an achievement standpoint, uh, you know, from a, uh, from a satisfaction in many ways, it still is those peak pressure moments, right? There are critical sort of junctures that we, we meet in our, in our lives, in all of our lives, where the outcomes are reasonably binary, right? Am I going to get that job that launches my career in the right path or not? And, and you know, you're, you're into a bit of a sliding doors moment where it's like you either catch the train or you don't catch the train and your life kind of goes in two very different directions. So I, I, I do think, though, on the whole, the pressures that visit most of us are of the long haul variety and the peak pressure moments are a little fewer and farther between than, you know, the Navy SEALs, elite athletes and, and doctors. Mm. Yeah, really interesting. It, you know, we're talking about a lot around the kind of what of the of pressure and, you know, so for people listening, when they f how what are some signs that they can notice um, that they can easily grasp when pressure is maybe building too much or pressure is dropping too low? How, how can they recognize that? What are the triggers for them to help them get into more of a peak performance state? Yeah. Yeah. And this is a great question because it gets at the heart of everything, which is in order to access the power under pressure and do something positive with it, you first have to notice the impact that pressure is having on you. And that sounds pretty straightforward, but it's actually not that intuitive most of the time. Um, you know, because when pressure hits, as I mentioned, our, atten our attention starts to narrow. Actually, when we are under pressure, we are least likely to notice the impact that it is having on us. Uh, it, you know, because there is this process in, in the brain, which is an unconscious process known as sensory gating. And sens sensory gating is an essential function of our brain. Uh, it, you know, uh, we need to block out a whole bunch of information in order to function. If I was conscious, you know, constantly aware of every place that my clothing was touching my body, of every conversation going on in a restaurant, you know, if all of these pieces of information were given equal weight by my brain, uh, I would shut down. I would be overwhelmed. And so our body and our brain naturally filter out information. When we go into a highly pressurized state, that process goes into overdrive and our body filters out more and more information to focus on what it thinks is, you know, the single biggest threat in the environment. And so we start to lose access unless we are conscious to the stuff that alerts us that the pressure is building. And so one of the big tools that we work on, you know, with, with all the performers in our practice is the discipline of active awareness. And active awareness is kind of akin to mindfulness, right? It's this ability 
when I am under pressure to step back and observe myself, right? To start to notice the impact that pressure is having on me. And, and, and that impact can be felt physically, like to your point, how do you know? Well, all of us have signals and those signals can be cognitive, they can be emotional or they can be physical. So for me, when I get put under pressure, what I start to notice is I start to clench my jaw and I start to ball my fist. Those are some of my physical signals. Uh, we worked with uh, a, a, a lawyer, uh, uh, sorry, not a lawyer, an inventor uh, one time uh, who was a guy who had a bunch of patents to his name. And he had started to become the victim of patent trolls, you know, people who would buy up sort of patents that were like his and then would start to sue him for using his own patents. And, and it drove him crazy as an inventor because he would get hauled into court to defend himself against these spurious lawsuits where these folks were just hoping that they would essentially get a payoff. He would just get so frustrated that he would just buy their patents so we wouldn't have to go through all of these lawsuits. And because he got so emotionally engaged in this, because he, he saw it as such an injustice, he, he became a very bad witness for his own cause because he would get combative, he would argue, he would berate. And so finally he agreed with his lawyer on a very practical strategy. His lawyer said, when you are sitting in the witness box, anytime you feel your back lose contact with the chair in the witness stand, that is your signal that the pressure is getting to you and you need to take a minute to pause because you're probably about to do something that's not gonna be in your own best interest. And so, you know, I've got my clenched jaw or my bald fist. This guy had his back leaving the, you know, the seat of the chair. I think all of us benefit under pressure from having a little bit of an early warning system, right? From knowing what are the things that are going to trigger us. In this guy's case, it was, you know, aggressive lawyers trying to take ownership of his patents, right? That's a very specific trigger. But most of us have triggers. Maybe it's getting talked over, having somebody else represent our ideas as their own, uh, you know, seeing somebody else belittled or disrespected, right? We want to know our triggers. But then critically, we want to also know our signals. How am I going to know that I've been triggered? right? Is it the bald fist? Is it a flash of anger? Is it a certain thought pattern? Uh, and those are going to be very unique to the individual, but, but, but getting clear on what they are for you, that's how you can kind of get into that position where I'm not just reactive to the pressure. I'm able to step back, notice the impact that pressure is having on me. And then from that position of noticing, now I get to choose, right? I, I don't just go with my default. Now I actually get to determine the response that, that is most helpful in the situation. Uh, very, very good. And, and I'm just thinking, uh, we've got a, you know, a lot of people will talk about flow, right? And when you're in flow, yeah. you're in peak performance. And when you're in flow, everything's easy and you kind of don't know what's going on. But in fact, you are actually extremely aware of what's going on of the signals in that sitting. Mm. Is that correct? Well, I think, you know, flow is sort of a form of unconscious competence. You know, there, there's two ways to be competent at something. We can be consciously competent and we can be unconsciously competent. Uh, and both of them can be high performance states. Um, but being consciously competent at something takes a lot more energy. And I'll use the example of driving. Uh, you know, certainly pre-COVID anyways, I think most of us had a commute, you know, to and from work. And, and typically that commute is a zone of unconscious competence, right? Like you get home and you're like, holy crap, I'm home. Like you, you have no memory of like turn left, turn right. You know, so, you know, you can be up in your head, uh, you know, thinking about the events at work and you're still going to make it home. You know, now if you have to drive that same route in a snowstorm, you know, I'm in Canada here. So this is a pretty common occurrence or like, a, you know, an ice storm. You know, the same task now becomes a task of conscious competence, right? I got to pay really close attention to making sure I'm leaving enough room between me and the car in front of me. Uh, every action that I take has to be well thought through and carefully calibrated. The end of that drive, uh, same result, same outcome. I'm sitting in my driveway safe. One, I'm exhausted, right, from all the time and attention and care. The other, I'm fine, right, because I've been in this zone of kind of unconscious competence. And so, you know, I think when we get into a flow state where we're completely absorbed in the task and our attention is focused entirely on what it is that we need to do and not distracted by, you know, in many ways, we're in kind of this zone of unconscious competence where we can get a lot done with minimal kind of energy usage. And that's what makes it such a high performance state. And, and it's not so much that I don't notice the cues in the environment. It's that I am fully consumed by 
the object of my performance, right? And whether that is skating a routine, you know, at the Olympic Games, or it's I get really engrossed in encoding, you know, a piece of software, and I don't even notice that all of a sudden it's dark outside. I might not notice those things, but I'm acutely attuned to the object of my performance, which is the block of code or the, you know, the the, the athletic performance I'm carrying out. Uh, so that comes through loud and clear for sure. Mm. And so now we're, you know, when we can actually observe it and and feel it, you know, pressure, you know, pressures there and how we're responding to it. How what what are some practical tips that you know people can use when they feel pressure get either too high or get too low to to make sure that the pressure is kind of in that sweet spot? So so this is where I go back to the equation because you know a lot of the tools uh, for me anchor off of once I am observing the impact pressure is having on me, this is my chance to check in on importance, uncertainty, and volume. Okay, so let's 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 talk about importance. You know, if my energy is too low, if there's too little pressure, it probably means that I don't see what I'm doing as important, right? Like that, or at least that's one potential root cause is I'm just going like, oh my God, why should I even bother with this, right? Like, you know, and so there I'm going to turn to the technique of, I got to find a path to importance, right? I got to find a way to connect what I'm doing with why it matters to me. And so there are three paths that I've kind of found to importance. One is the growth path which is, okay, how is this going to help me get better? Uh, you know, how is this going to help me progress? Growth can give tremendous meaning to, to pressure. There is the contribution path, which is, okay, how is this benefiting others, right? How is doing this helping my team or the company or society or my family or my loved ones? And then there is the connection path to importance, which is, okay, how is doing this going to bring me closer to people that I care about, right? Is this going to bring me closer to, you know, and so I think, you know, in those situations, I would, you know, try to activate one of those three paths to get to a good answer to one of those three questions. On the other hand, you know, if there's too much pressure, I might notice that it's because I've attached overwhelming importance to the outcome of the situation. And so I start to ask myself one critical question, which is, well, what's not at stake here, right? What are the important things in my life that won't change regardless of how this presentation goes or how this week unfolds? Because we get so fixated on what is at stake in our high pressure moments, it's often necessary to consciously redirect our attention back to the fact that, you know, no matter how this sales presentation goes, I'm still going to have my job. I'm going to have, you know, my my colleagues, my friends, my family, my health. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think your technique is going to depend a little bit on your diagnostic when you step back, right? Do I notice that there's too little importance or too much importance? Do I notice that there's too little uncertainty or too much uncertainty? Do I notice there's too little volume or too much volume? And that's really going to kind of direct my path to uh, the, you know, the, the club, so to speak, that I'm going to pull out of the golf bag. Mm. Talking a lot here around energy management and really that's what leadership yeah. is. That's kind of what life is. It's all about mental and physical physiological energy and how do we manage that uh, as well. So the importance over the long term, because we, we, it's easy to kind of fall into that space of talking around pressure and peak performance in that one spot. When we, when we look at pressure over a long period of time, what are some strategies around energy management that we can put into place that allow us to tap into kind of that peak performance state and really taking control of pressure? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think there's a lot of focus on time management um, when it comes to pressure. And, you know, for time management is kind of a trap uh, from my perspective, right? Uh, because, you know, when you look at people who get really good at time management, do they get more volume or less volume? They get more volume, right? You know, time management is a great way to become more efficient. It's not really a solution to pressure. It's like, it's like digging a hole at the beach. You know, the bigger the hole that you dig, the more water is going to flow in to fill it. Uh, energy management is a, is a great corollary to time management, because to your point, you know, if I can bring a lot of energy to what I have to do, but then find time to recover uh, and kind of modulate my energy to get some rest, uh, you know, that's a great way, A, to increase my productivity, but B, it's also, uh, you know, a direct hit on, on pressure. And, you know, the metaphor that, uh, uh, that our, our founder at Third Factor and, and my dad, Peter, uh, he came up with, he, he always talks about you know, our ability to be less like a thermometer and more like a thermostat, right? You know, a thermometer is just a tool of measurement, right? If the environment's heated, it gets you know, heated. If the environment's cool, it stays cool. 
A thermostat, on the other hand, says, no, I get to set the temperature, right? I get to decide, okay, where do I want to be in this situation? And then I have tools to be able to manage my energy up or down to, to where, where is optimal. And so I think the first part of energy management is that, that, that determining where do I want to set the thermostat, right? There are some tasks where I want to be at an eight out of 10, right? If I've got to, you know, go into a, a rugby game, like I better be pretty amped up, right? Uh, I better be at a pretty high level of energy. You know, on the other hand, if I'm going into a brainstorming session where it's all about creativity and, you know, lateral thinking and being open to surprise, I'm probably going to want to be at a little bit of a more relaxed state because that's more, you know, where I'm less likely to really try to drive to a solution and remain kind of open to broader thinking. And so, you know, that's step one is like figure out what's the optimal level of energy for what I'm about to do right now. And then once I've got that, there's a variety of ways we can turn up or turn down. You know, the, the, the heavy hitter for turning the thermostat down, and this is going to be no surprise to you, Craig, as, as, a, as a student and a teacher of pressure, is breathing, right? At the end of the day, the most direct way that we can turn the thermostat down is to go in direct at the physiological level. Um, you know, the second I start to move my breath down to my diaphragm, get it out of my chest and down into my diaphragm, and I start to slow it down, you know, to six or seven breaths a minute, that's going to start to bring the energy level down uh, across the board, mind, feelings, and, and body. And so that's, you know, that's a real heavy hitter for, for turning the thermostat down. When I need to regain energy, when I need to turn the thermostat up, you know, especially over the long haul, typically this is about my approach to breaks and recovery. Uh, you know, I think many of us in our jobs set a schedule that would be ludicrous if it was imposed on us, right? You know, I, I run a lot of workshops uh, for a living. Our workshops typically will go, you know, 8.30 to 4.30, 9 to 5. You imagine the response we would get if a crew, you know, walked into one of our workshops and we said, hey, we're going 9 to 5.30, no breaks, right? You're going to sit down. We're going to teach you for eight and a half hours. You're going to eat lunch at your, like, there would be a revolt, right? And yet that's the schedule that most of us set for ourselves, like every single day, right? I'm just going to sit here and plow through. And, and, you know, what we know is that the body doesn't work that way. We are built to work in 90 to 120 minute chunks with 10 to 15 minutes of recovery uh, interspersed. And, and there's, there's a lot of great, you know, research on that. You can look at Jim Lair, Jim Lair and Tony Schwartz at the Energy Project, uh, Dan Pink's When, uh, you know, there's a lot of good research on how to break up your day and how to recover. But, but that's a big one for me in terms of regaining energy over the long haul. But it starts with that thermostat, right? Do I know where I want to be? And then, okay, again, what's the tool that I'm going to pull out to either, you know, turn up or, or turn down? Yeah, very good. Very, very good. Some great insights in here to, to pressure. Now, you've, you do, you've done quite a bit of work with, uh, in leadership development programs with, you know, some quite big companies like Uber and uh, SAP and Twitter, etc. When you're dealing with them, with those bigger companies, what, what are the biggest factors that you're dealing with when it comes to leadership development? You know, obviously we can teach skills around how to do your job, but that ability to lead well, what are some of the factors that you're seeing as really crucial to being a high performing leader? Yeah, I, I you know, we kind of typically cut in in one of three ways, uh, Craig. So there's, you know, this ability to first lead myself. Um, and that's a lot of what we're talking about here, right? This is my relationship to pressure, my ability to recover when I get knocked off balance, you know, my self-awareness around my tendencies uh, as a leader. Y you know, before we can lead others, we, we have to lead ourselves. We have to be a stable platform for leadership. Uh, you know, people want a leader who is even keeled, who doesn't fly off the handle uh, and then have to walk it back after the pressure has passed. And so, you know, I think that's that's number one. And that's really kind of, you know, if you think about our business and sport, we work with athletes, we work with teams and we work with coaches. That's the athlete part, right? This is me as a, a, an athlete and my ability to perform, to stay centered and to recover uh, from pressure and, and adversity. So that's kind of the first lane that we, we operate in. On top of that, there is collaboration. And I think this is one that has become vastly more important over the past 18 months, which is okay, you know, as a leader of a team, I have to understand team dynamics and what it means for a group of people to come together and, and be able to collaborate effectively, whether distance is a factor or not. Uh, you know, and so the discipline of collaboration now that so many teams are either remote or hybrid has become much more important. And so this is where our work in team sport 
really feeds into how we approach this in corporate environments. Uh, you know, the communication systems that teams set up rooted in the knowledge of the norms and personalities on the team. That's what really mediates the degree to which we get more out of a group of people or less out of a group of people. And so we're doing a lot of work on collaboration right now. And then the third is really my role as a coach. And this is where we move from, you know, leading myself and leading, you know, being part of a team to now leading others. Uh, and I think what we have seen, you know, pretty unequivocally over the past 20 years, and in particular now, when we look at the great resignation and how many people are moving jobs is people want to work for somebody who has their best interests at heart and is creating opportunities for them to grow and develop. And so when we look at leaders who are exceptional coaches, what they're doing is they are creating environments that are characterized by growth and development, by, by what we call a developmental bias. That is, I am biased as a leader towards the development of the people that I lead. And so I, you know, I have a pretty firm belief, and it's the way that we built up the firm, that you know, when it comes to you know, people leadership, I'm not talking about you know, functional leadership or you know, strategy or technical skills, but people leadership, it, it really is a function of a strong I right? I'm a stable platform. I'm self-aware and resilient of we, right? We understand how to collaborate and communicate as a team and of you, my, my ability to invest in your growth and development, because that's what unlocks commitment. That's what unlocks engagement. And so it's usually one or a combination of those three things that we're, we're really speaking to uh, with our clients. Uh, ex excellent. Now I could keep going all day talking around <laughs> uh, pressure, performance, leadership, and, and we're only just start, uh, starting to touch leadership. Um, for someone who is stepping into this kind of transitioning kind of from an emerging leader into kind of more of a senior leadership role, what would your biggest piece of advice be? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing and I don't know that this is going to be mind blowing or, you know, particularly unique, but, but I do think, you know, this ability to recognize that your focus has shifted from being evaluated and successful as a result of your execution to being evaluated and successful as a result of the people that you assemble and the commitment that you can inspire in them. Uh, I do think that is a key difference between frontline leadership and senior leadership. I, I think you can make it from individual contributor to frontline leader and still have a real bias towards execution. I, I, I don't think you can make it to senior leadership without that ability to know your strengths, build a team that complements your strengths, and create an environment in which they are willing to devote their extra effort. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, that to me is the path to, you know, to, to broader impact is, is that ability to make that leap. Mm, love it. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? When was the last time I did something for the first time? All right, let me think. I'm trying to think of something truly unique that I had never done before that I did for the first time over the past little while. You know, it's interesting. I have so many little steps coming to mind over the past 18 months. I think, you know, the past 18 months has been one constant succession of doing things that I had never done before. Uh, you know, whether it was the first kind of virtual speech, uh, you know, staring into my camera and not being able to see anybody or hear anybody laugh at my jokes and, <laughs> and coming to terms with the fact that I just had to believe that they were laughing out there. Uh, that was, you know, that was certainly one first was kind of getting really comfortable with that. I think something that we've had to do a few times now, we, you know, we've just hired three new people into the firm is, you know, hire and onboard a completely new team member without ever meeting them at any point in the process. Um, and I think that was, you know, really net new for us as an organization. And I think it's been a real learning curve, right? I think we did some things well uh, in terms of building a sense of community. 
I think there's some things we've learned that we would do a little bit differently, but I would say that was, that was a pretty net new experience that, uh, that's been a little interesting over the past year. <laughs> what is one question that you would love to solve? One question that I would love to solve. Mm. Oh God, I don't know if this is a super cliche question, but you know, what exists on the other side of the universe? I mean, that's a kid that I, you know, I, that's a question I've had since I was a kid and trying to grapple with, okay, what happens at the end of space? Like what, what, what's on the other side of nothing? Uh, man, I, you know, I don't know if we can ever answer that question, but that's one that I would love to know the answer uh, to at a very existential level. <laughs> Who is an inspiring great leader that you look up to? You know, I, I, I can I can think of a number of names from my past careers that uh, that, you know, folks on the podcast would have no context for who, I, you know, people that I do think of as as really strong leaders who have mentored me and, and been there and, and supported me. Um, I'm trying to think of somebody who is better known. You know, it's interesting. I, I think the leaders that I look up to are. And actually, I, I do think there's an interesting point in here for mentorship as well, is I think sometimes from a mentorship standpoint, we pair people with, it's like, hey, you're the new intern, like here's the CEO, because we think that's going to be a real kind of piece of recognition. It's like, oh my gosh, the CEO, and, and it is, it makes the person feel good. But I actually think the most effective mentors are you know, people who are just like me, but two steps ahead where I can actually relate to where they're at and I can actually learn from them because they've done it in my context with, you know, so I think actually, honestly, the leaders that I look up to are people who, you know, no one who is listening to this would know their names, but, uh, uh, you know, are a step ahead of me. I think of Robert Brown in Ireland. I think of Vincent Firth in New York. Um, I think of Bob Lurie in Boston. Uh, these are all, you know, uh, folks that I look up to Sandy Pacharski, uh, uh from monitor. Um, so yeah, I, you know, not a lot of recognizable names, but all people that I've learned a ton from. I think it's important to recognize those people that have been influential in your life. And what I love about when you talk about there, you talked about where they come from and they, they weren't all just from the little city you grew up in or, or the town. They were no. from various places around the world. And that's the beauty, obviously, of the world we live in now where it's so easy to access people from different parts of the world or different areas of expertise, which is fantastic. Now you've You've got your, your new book, the, the Power of Pressure, which has just been released in the last uh, few weeks, uh, which is really, really exciting. And that's out in, in all good bookstores and online as well. So how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Yeah, so uh, you can learn more about what we do at Third Factor at www.third, that's T-H-I-R-D, factor.com. Uh, you can connect with me. I'm, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Uh, you can just search for Dane Jensen. I'm on Twitter. My handle is at Dane Jensen. Uh, so those are both great ways to connect with me. And, and Craig, as you mentioned, the book is available uh, at fine bookstores everywhere. And uh, I hope you check out a copy. And if you do, please let me know. I'm always happy to have a conversation if you got any questions or, or your own story about the most pressure you've ever been under. I love to hear them. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, and, and we'll put all those links into the show notes as well. Dane, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, uh, really diving into the world of pressure and performance and how we can do that both on a, a peak performance sort of moment in time versus over the long haul. And, and I love how you've been able to share some of those insights, not only to experiences with other people, but also what you've experienced yourself and, and been able to share at the beginning there about the time where your, your young one-year-old had, had wandered off up through the forest. Um, it actually reminds me when I was a little kid on my first birthday, uh, we lived on a, on a rural farm and the, ne the neighbors were like um, one mile away type thing and they found me, I had crawled across the cattle stop and I was heading down the road towards where the cow shed was, which is a whole mile away. So they caught me about five or 600 meters away. So I can imagine my parents going through the same, same thing you had, because we had a, a river in front of our house and uh, things like that as well. Um, but oh, yeah, an incredible little insight there. And I loved how you dove into kind of the evidence behind pressure. Uh, you were able to help people in how the ability to observe what's going on and 
internally and externally when it comes to pressure, but then also how to respond to those. And I think that's really, really important where people understand how to respond um, and deal with, thing, with the kind of three areas of importance, uncertainty, and the volume of what's going on in that pressure equation. So Dane, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I wish you all the, the success with the power of pressure and uh, I look forward to staying in touch and I'm sure we can have many more great conversations like this in the future. Thanks so much, Craig. Really appreciate it. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast where the ordinary don't belong.